Welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. I'm delighted to have Mike Adams on the line. And Mike is the author of Seven Stories Every Salesperson Needs to Tell. Mike, please give us a quick introduction to who you are and tell us your story. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm sitting in the dark in Melbourne, Australia. That's where I am. I started my sales career a long, long time ago. In fact, it started in 1996 in Norway. I was transferred to Norway. My wife was eight months pregnant at the time. Didn't really want a sales job, Marcus, but the uh, allure of going to a an, an fascinating country like Norway decided it for me. And our second child was born uh, a month after we arrived. And I was on the phone trying to be a salesperson at the time. That was 1996. I think I would have gone straight back to engineering, except I won the biggest deal in our software division worldwide in my rookie year, and that was complete accident. It was total good fortune. I just happened to hit what the CB uh, Gartner guys would call a mobilizer, and this person, the client, did the whole deal for me, (laughs) the biggest corporate deal in our company. And uh, it took me a few years, years actually to realize how lucky I was, but like many salesperson, I thought it was down to my skill <laughs> and that I could do this job. <laughs> so I stayed in sales and I ended up um, working all throughout Europe. I went to Russia, ran a sales team in Russia, came back to Australia, changed industry to telecommunications from oil and gas software. That was back in 2003. That's an interesting move for a salesperson to shift industry. I had no choice. There was no oil and gas industry in Melbourne when we decided to come home from Europe. And I told a good story to get a job selling very high ticket, multi tens, $100 million telecoms equipment and um, changed industry. I actually eventually changed industry, Marcus, four more times. And by then I'd figured out what kinds of stories I needed to make that work, to make industry changes work. I worked in facility services. I went back into oil and gas with Halliburton, came back into into telecoms with Motorola emergency services, went into industrial safety, and 2014 started my own consulting business, really working on the issue that I had experienced as a sales leader. I was running pretty big sales teams, more than 100 when I was with Nokia in Asia. And my recurring issue was was how to get salespeople to say the right thing, how to get them to have the types of conversations they needed to have with their clients. And um, and if you've been a sales leader and you've engaged with sales training organizations and you've, you've had that experience of, this, of the churn of the salespeople being faster than you can train them and, and you don't need a difference in skill level. And, and I got to experience that across multiple industries. And, and so my intention with my consulting business in 2014 was to see what I could do to change that. And one of the ideas I had at that time was to see if I could teach storytelling And last year, I wrote a book on it because I was having a lot of success teaching storytelling, but to a pretty small group of clients. And the idea of writing the book was to get these ideas more broadly out there. And uh, it's not a surprise, really. The very best salespeople, they're all good storytellers, but mostly unconsciously good. They mostly don't know they're doing it or how they're doing it. And the idea of, of seven stories, every salesperson must tell, by the way, is the title. The idea of that book is to create a framework so that people can step through the types of stories they need as they pass through a buying cycle. So as they progress from 
from the first meeting when they're trying to engage and, and show that they're credible and they can be trusted and, and then you can work with them through to changing minds, differentiating, and then through to closing the deal. How do you do that? And how do you use stories to, to help you do that? And that's why I wrote the book and the book's been doing very well, which I'm, I'm thankful for. And I believe you've had a chance to look at it as well. I read it and to be perfectly honest, I think it's something that's woefully missing in most sales training programs. I think it's a skill set that everybody needs to develop, whether you're selling internally or externally. So it's a strong recommend from me. Thank you. What are the seven types of story? I wrote the book, I used a fishing metaphor through the book and on the cover there's a a picture of a fly fishing lure drawn by my wife actually. And so the story is like the lure. The story is is the tool that you use to pass information and to create a change in the mind of your buyer. So the first three stories are the hook. When you're trying to hook, you're trying to make a connection with your potential client, your new client. And the three stories in that phase are your personal story, which is all of these stories are typically two or three minutes long, Marcus. It's a, it's a two or three minute story that's it's a combination of your career story and really your personal story about why you do what you do. When you sit in front of a client, they've never met you before, they don't know who you are, they have a question in their mind. They have a couple of questions. The questions are, who are you? Can I trust you? And are you an authority in what you do? And if you're able to, to give a little potted narrative of how you got into your job, into sales, how you know about the particular products and services that you're selling, and how you help other people, if you can tell that in two or three minutes, it's a tremendous thing. It really answers those questions, those unspoken questions that your new client has. And if at the end of that, you say the magic words, which are enough about me, what about you? How did you get to be head of this division or whatever they are in your role? If you've seeded your personal story the right way, you'll get to hear their personal story. And that's something that many salespeople never get to hear in their entire sales campaign. They never get to know their clients that well. And if you can start that way, it's just a tremendous advantage because what, it, what happens is you get this instant trust and friendship right in the first meeting simply because you shared stories. So that's story number one. Story number two is the story that you may tell of someone else in your organization, maybe your CEO if you're in a small company or maybe your technical sales guy that they haven't met yet or your head of customer service or your program manager who's going to deliver the project. These stories, you can position those other people as experts and and real authorities and you can get your future client liking and trusting that person before they even meet them if you know how to tell that type of story. So I call that the key staff story, the key person story. And the third connection story is your company story. And that's the narrative about how your company started, why it didn't fail, because most companies do fail, and most companies actually have a near failure, how it succeeded. How was it that your company succeeded? And then how do you actually support and help your clients today? And where are you going? What's the strategy of your company? It's a two or three-minute narrative about your company. Now, if you're working for a small company, 
your company story and your personal story might be almost the same story. If you're working for a very big company, if you're working for Microsoft or Google or something like that, most people probably know your company story a little bit, but they probably don't know your company story as it relates to that industry or that territory. So you can customize the company story to your situation. So those three stories, personal story, key staff story, and company story are stories that connect and they allow you to ask the question, what about your company? What about your division? What do you guys do? How did you get there? And you start this exchange. And and I can't emphasize enough that in sales, it's not just storytelling, it's story sharing that really really creates the connection and helps you with your selling an enormous amount. That makes a lot of sense. And then from there, we go on to some different types of story, which I think we'll cover slightly later on. What I'd like to do is really focus in on how one develops stories within the channel situation. Yes. The audience is made up to a large extent of vendors, founders, CEOs, and MSPs, uh, SIs, and VARs who are looking to scale up fast, but they don't want to lose control. So, I've been in that situation myself <laughs> on both so, sides of that, on both sides of that fence, both uh, mostly as vendor with big corporations. So I was, I was responsible for channel sales in uh, Motorola, in Nokia, in Siemens, but I also had the experience of being the uh, the channel <laughs> when I was uh, being um, whipped by a very aggressive telecommunications company that will remain nameless. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so I do appreciate the situation and. And channel sales is just harder. It's just more difficult than direct sales because you're needing to communicate, if you're the vendor, through the channel to the end client. The very best vendors maintain their own end client relationships, but still you, you have to communicate and you need consistent communication. And stories are the, they're the perfect tool for channel sales because when you make sure that you're VARs and MSPs, your SIs, understand the critical stories of your company, starting with your company story. Can they tell your your vendor company story? But then can they tell the relevant success stories and the insight stories? Can they pass on the values? What are the values of you as a vendor? You know, given my experience, it's so difficult to pass complex information between vendor and, and channel that I would say story is the most critical communication type to have between vendors and channels. This is something that a lot of my clients are experiencing because in Holland, they have a saying, which is you're too big to be a tea towel and too small to be a tablecloth. And (laughs) they're caught in the middle and they don't have the brand. They don't have the footprint but they're beyond the point of where they're at startup. So they've got a few customers and they're looking to scale up fast, but they don't want to lose control. They don't want the wheels to come off the bus and they only have influence and trust that they've had to earn in order to be able to manage those relationships. So I view channel sales as the single hardest job there is in sales. I I agree with you. I agree with you. And if you think about an SI, for example, that has to deal with multiple vendors, now how do most of those vendors 
communicate information about their products and services. They send, I'll tell you how they do it because I did this, they send 50 to 100 page PowerPoint packs at them and direct them to complicated websites that are difficult to understand and force them to go through complicated telephone customer support relationships. And then you expect that channel to really represent you and correctly pass information. Well, you know, that's a big ask. But if you can put into story the relevant successes and the relevant insights and the relevant values, those particular types of stories, which we should go into, then what happens is that SI that's dealing with multiple vendors, who does he rem- remembers your company, not yeah. the other one. They've got a memorable story and it's, ah, I get it. It's that insight. And they'll start telling the story again because this is a thing about well-crafted stories. People repeat them. They do work over and over and over again because people just retell a good story. So you've got a tool that seems simple, seems innocuous, but does work for you. And it does work for you in that noise of all those other vendors and all those PowerPoint packs and difficult to navigate websites. That, I think, is the critical point. If you're trying to grow your business as a vendor, you're operating in a crowded, competitive, noisy marketplace. And your partners or your prospective partners already have relationships with a dozen other vendors. And I think one of the big challenges is to get some mind space because they're not thinking about you every moment of every day. They're probably thinking about you in the context of a particular deal or opportunity where one of their clients has said, we have this particular problem. They go out to the market and then they find this vendor. And the vendor then tries to impose on the partner a time frame because they have an agenda. And I was on the phone earlier on today to Olivier Charon, who is part of Impartner. And he made the point that if you're trying to onboard a partner and they're not ready, it's not going to happen. Their mind is elsewhere. So you have to earn that trust. You have to earn the right to have that conversation with them. And this is why I was thinking the conversation that you and I were going to have today was so apposite because it's about telling that story and helping the partner to tell their story so that we can find that common ground and that common purpose. Absolutely. That's exactly it. And if you think about from the SI, from the MSP's perspective, how do I get those guys to remember my product and the insights and the, and the stories of my, you know, of my product? And you can throw away most of your communication tools and just keep stories and you can succeed. And if you understand how, how to put these stories together and, and, and the types of stories you need to look for to tell those channels. As a channel manager, because you only have trust and influence, I think it's really important to be able to enter into the conversations that your partners are already having in order to be able to get them to open up and tell their story. In, in Sandler, we teach the rule that prospects never argue with their own data. Neither departments. And if you get them to tell their story, then they do the presentation. They handle their own objections and they even close themselves. You don't have any resistance. And a good salesperson, I think, 
does all of the work up front. So when they're in front of the prospect interviewing them, and I, I call them a sales interview rather than a sales meeting or a pitch, then the prospect is doing 70% of the talking. And the salesperson, mm-hmm. through their judicious use of questioning and the use of effective third-party stories, is able to help the prospect to open up and to diagnose their own problem. And certainly in my past, what I found was when I was trying to push my agenda, I got a lot of resistance and a lot of objections. And then I wrote a lot of proposals that were never read. And if they were, they were shopped around town to my competition and someone else got paid. But if you focus on the customer or whoever it is that you're speaking to, whether it be a partner, whether it be an end user, and you have them tell their story, then you don't get any resistance. And in order to be, have someone else be vulnerable, I think you have to be vulnerable first. That's why I think the model that you've come up with, with the personal story and the company creation story in particular, and the inside stories are really, really powerful in terms of helping the prospect or the partner to open up. Your thoughts? Yeah, exactly so. And stories are kind of the forgotten tool of, of sales instruction. You know, most of the books behind me that you can see in, the, in our video is, uh, most of those sales books are really questioning technique books. And, and of course, questions are wonderfully powerful tools, but you don't necessarily get complete opening up and sharing of how things are with just questions, particularly if there's a level of mistrust. But the stories create the trust. So the person, the connection stories, the personal story, key stuff, company story, they create the trust. And then the next two types of stories, insight stories and success stories, are another way to exchange stories in a discovery meeting. I'll give you the insight story first. I'll, I'll give a quick example from the medical industry, which is sort of famous example, really. So back in the early 1980s, there were two medical researchers working in Western Australia in Perth, and uh, Robin Warren and Barry Marshall, they were. Barry Marshall actually was a master's student, and he, he went in on Robin Warren's research project, which was looking at the possibility that stomach ulcers might be caused by bacteria instead of the prevailing wisdom, which was that they were caused by stress. And uh, they had identified a particular bacteria that they thought was the culprit and had written about it already in papers, and, and no one wanted to hear that story. And they also had a lot of trouble replicating their results in in animals. So um, Barry Marshall decided to give himself an endoscopy and then drink a potion from an infected patient, give himself stomach ulcers, and then treat himself with the the particular antibacterium and prove that he had cured himself with that antibacterium. They wrote that paper, which was not just accepted, it went all around the world in a huge buzz. And in 2004, Marshall and Warren won the Nobel Prize for Medicine. It's an interesting insight example because it it illustrates several problems with insight. But by definition, is insight by definition is something that your market and client does not appreciate. But if they did, it would be really good for them. And the problem with insight is because they don't appreciate it they may not want to listen to you. I mean, after all, who are you? You're just a vendor and you think you know something about my business and I think I already know a lot about my business. And that was Barry Marshall's problem. 
he thought he knew something, but the medical establishment knew better. And that's the problem of every entrepreneur and your startups or your scale-ups, that's their issue. You're like, how do I scale up with this brilliant idea when it's not accepted? The idea doesn't fit. And the problem is that facts and assertions don't work because you're trying to tell me I don't know my business. But if you can teach your channel partner or your end client how you discovered that thing and how you got people to understand it, you're essentially taking them through the process that you went through to learn it. I call it the researcher's journey. The insight story is the research person's journey, the person that discovered the insight, their journey. And if you put that into story, it's incredibly compelling. And and your channel partner, your SI or your end customer will listen because it's really interesting how you discovered that thing. And they won't push back because they're learning. You're not presenting them with the fact or the assertion. You're presenting them with a journey of how you got there. They learn how you learned. And that's the missing piece with insight. Most big vendors, and I work for quite a few of them, think that they can deliver insight in hundreds of slides in PowerPoint. And it's not understandable. It's not comprehensible. But if you can, and and most big companies present the insight as a fait accompli, as done. They don't want to tell you all the missteps and the, how things went wrong before they discovered this thing because they think that's not interesting, but that is interesting. That's what makes it understandable. I have an MSP client who was, came to me for some coaching and he was about to go into a meeting and the technical people had literally produced a 90-slide PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> and we had a very brief conversation about that. And (laughs) those 90 slides were then canned in favor of storytelling and questioning. Because what we have to remember is human beings have been sat around campfires listening to and telling stories for millennia. We're creatures of emotion and we respond well to stories. I think you made the point that it's impossible to tear yourself away from a good story. That's right. A good story needs to be relevant to their You have to be engaged in it, but also there has to be a point. And I think one of the mistakes I see a lot of people making is when they attempt to tell stories is there just doesn't seem to be a purpose to it. And so it falls flat. What's your advice in terms of managing that side of the story evolution? Yeah, well, I mean, we've gone quite a few minutes without defining what a story exactly is. And um, I should say what a story actually is, what it has to be. (laughs) So a story is a related sequence of events. This happened because of that, this happened, then this happened, so this. So if it's not a sequence of related events, it's not a story at all. And if you put company story into Google, you can read all of the marketing company stories and all the websites that aren't stories. They'll start with, we were founded in 1984 and we're the world's number one at this, this and this and we're based in New York and Paris. And that's not a story. That's just some facts. So it has to be a sequence, a narrative that goes from this to that to that and makes a point. And there's five fundamental things. So that's the first thing, sequence of related events. Secondly, it needs a start. The start is a setting. And if you're telling true stories, and my strong recommendation to your audience is to always tell true stories that you have checked out and you know they're true. 
it's easy enough when you tell your own stories, but you'll read in seven stories that you need to learn how to tell other people's stories and you need to check them because your credibility is gone the instant someone finds out that you're not telling a true story. And the universal signal of a true story is a time and a place. In 1996, I was transferred to Norway. That tells you that a true story is coming. And if you don't start with a setting, with a time and a place, people may not know that you're telling a story and they won't stop and listen because that's what stories force people to do is to stop and listen because we know that point number three, we know that stories have something unpredictable in them. It's not a good story if I can predict exactly how it's going to end. Now, when you tell your personal story, it's not really predictable because they don't know you, so they're not going to be able to predict the events of your life. But if you start telling a pretty plain old success story and it's obvious what the ending is, it's not a good story. It, It doesn't work well. So this is point number three. It needs to have some surprise, some unpredictability in it. The fourth point is it should turn on one central character. Personal story, the central character is yourself. Key staff story, it is that key person. They're the character. And the company story, usually it's the company founder. But if you work for a company that's 100 years old, it might be the company itself that is the character. And the insight story, it's the researcher. It's that person that made the discovery. And the success story, the character will be your successful client that you're telling about. And we'll get onto that in a minute. So it has to have a central character. And there's a very good reason for that, Marcus. The reason is you want your listener to inhabit that character. You want them to imagine themselves as that character because then they're going to get the experience of the story. And there's only two ways that we can learn something. We can learn it by direct experience. It happened ourselves to us, or we learn it by story. So the reason that we don't go around playing with explosives is we've heard the story that they're dangerous (laughs) and we don't do it. So most of what we know, in fact, it's interesting, the vast amount of what we know is other people's stories. It never happened to us, but we still know it. We know it through story. And we know it because we could place ourselves in that character. And think about your science lessons through school and everything. You know, Isaac Newton and an apple, Apple, there was no Apple, right? But that's the story. We remember the character (laughs) of the person. We can't remember the first law of motion, right? So that's what we remember. We remember the stories about the people. And the final point, the point number five is we must make a relevant business point. We're not telling stories for entertainment. We're telling them for a reason. We often don't signal the reason. This is kind of debatable. We might say, look, that reminds me of a similar situation. Start telling it. I coach people not to say the word story because some people equate the word story to mean made up. And you definitely don't want people to think it's a made up story. So I don't say I would like to tell you a story about. I would say that reminds me of. We had a similar situation in China 10 years ago. And Usually the story can make the point, but we might at the end say, and that's why, that's the reason for this. And we're using the story to make a business point. Often people ask me, you know, what about if you're meeting a very high level CEO or CFO? These people don't like stories. And it's not true. They all have a neocortex. They all have a brain that loves stories, but they are short of time. And if you're not relevant, if it's not pretty clear that you're making a relevant business point with your story, you'll get shut down very quickly. 
So that's the, the five points. Sequence of related events, has a setting, time and place, is unpredictable and surprising in some way, has a central character, makes a business point. And those are the five ways your story can go wrong. One or other of those five things are, are how it can go wrong. And that's what you need to, to check when you're testing out a story. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so I do have a question outside of the channel just briefly because it can be related to the channel as well, which is around recruitment. Because I think recruitment is the single most important job of any manager and also for channel managers as well. Because if you recruit the best people, then you don't end up buying a management problem down the road and the job gets done. So you can then concentrate on the second part of your job description, which is to get the best out of the best people. And that's through coaching. And it's very relevant within the channel because I think a massively underrated aspect of channel management is coaching your channel partners, helping their midwife deals, helping them put together the right kind of stories to sell to the end user client because you can't be there every time. And they don't want you there, to be perfectly honest. I, I think if you do end up in a situation where they want you there every time, you become a bottleneck. And that doesn't serve anybody either. So in terms of recruiting, what kind of stories do you recommend managers develop? How do I represent my company to get a good recruit? Or how do I use story to figure out if I have a good recruit in front of me? I was thinking the former, but I really like the second question too. So both. Yeah, well, I've just been working with the the main electricity company here in the state that I work in, and we've been developing their company story. They've been in business since 1918. And the manager that I was working with (laughs) came to me, and and we'd, we'd gone through their story a couple of times, and he said, Mike, I've just run through a recruiting process, and I decided to test our company story out on my recruits. And the the impact was incredible. Five of them told me that they had never had ever been in a job interview where they understood what the company did so well and really wanted to work for that company as that by hearing that story. I also got to meet the lady that did get the job and the first thing she told me was, because we went and did a bit more job, a better job professionally filming the story and she came along and she said, this is why I joined this company. So that might answer your first point. The second point, recruiting, and I also help my clients with recruiting a lot, and I've developed a methodology for analyzing conversation skills. I play that because I know my clients well, Marcus, I, I, play their, I play their customer in a role play client call. And a lot of that is listening to their planning and their preparation and the questions they ask. But I usually ask a question like this. Tell me about a time in your career where you really helped. And this is what I'm listening for. Firstly, I'm listening for whether they can tell a story or whether they just tell me chopped up facts and assertions. And then I'm listening to the story to hear how animated and how engaged they are in that story. And I'm watching them. I'm doing this usually over a video conference, but I'm watching their eyes to to see how they're remembering that story so I know it was actually them and not someone else. And I'm also listening for whether they are the hero of the story or the person they helped is the person of the story, the, the hero of the story, the client they helped. And that leads directly onto success stories, which I think we should talk about next. 
it's really interesting to hear that and to record and re- record that and I share that back with my clients. And um, good storytelling is a mark of a good salesperson. A lot of my clients struggle to get good candidates and we might not find better than, say, one or two out of ten good candidates. And these kind of questions really help to, to bring them out. Very interesting. Okay, so talk me through this process of a success story. Yes. Well, I thought I would try an experiment since how, I don't know how many podcasts I've done, but it's a lot. I've always just told stories, but I thought I might see if I could coach and coach a, um, or um, coax a success story out of you, Marcus. Okay. I'm game. There's, so I'm going to ask you six, six questions around six events of a success story. So most of these stories that I've been telling are really three or four part stories. So there's a setting, Something goes wrong, we fix it, and here's the point. Three or four parts. But a good success story needs to start with the client, and we need six steps to do this properly. And I'll briefly say that a success story is not a case study because case studies are typically three parts. So the three parts of a case study, and a lot of vendors make case studies for their channel partners, and they're very uninspiring, these case studies, very often. because, Because in three parts, they go like this. This is my client with a massive problem. That's part one. Here's how we rode in on our white horse to help to fix the problem. And here is how great it is now, third part. Aren't we wonderful is the subtext, right? Aren't we the vendor wonderful? And the problem with writing your case studies, preparing your case studies like that is the client that you're telling them to, that you want the buyer, that you want that case study to resonate with can't see themselves in that case study because you made your company the hero of the story. So I'm going to ask you in six parts, going to get you to think about a situation, Marcus, where you in your business had a success with a client. And I'm going to start with event number one, which I'd like you to tell me about that client's business before they kind of ran into the problem that you helped them with. Could you give me a little setting? And I don't, you don't need to tell me the name of the company or even the industry if you don't want to, but just give me a, paint me a little bit of a picture of when and where they were and what sort of company they were. They're a tech security company. This is back in probably 2016. Yeah, about three years ago. And they were struggling because they'd flatlined. Um, so they'd had some success before then, Marcus? They'd done pretty well up Yeah, until... they'd got up to about two, two and a half million turnover. and. Yep. They'd picked up a few clients. They were struggling to keep them. It was a crowded, noisy, competitive market with a lot of competition. So they weren't getting a lot of mindshare. Do you know how they'd had their original success? Just as a, You may not know the, that. The but... founder had gone out and sold it. And then he'd taken on a couple of uh-huh. direct salespeople and he'd gotcha. put through them. That's uh, a very uh, common situation. And most commonly, by the way, that founder, that successful founder is a good storyteller who doesn't know he is. Yeah. So, okay, so we've got a company, it's a tech security company, and they've done well on the strength of the founder, but now they've hit a block, they're they're not growing? Tell me, describe their problem, describe their situation. Well, they had hit a brick wall because they hadn't seen any growth for a couple of years. You know, they'd won customers and then lost others. And mm. so they were getting companies in through the front door, letting them out the back door. And so they had hired salespeople by this stage? They'd burnt through, I think it was three by this point. 
So they hired people with industry experience and a black book and a track record, and they just didn't seem to work out in this job. And they'd taken people from larger companies, and they thought because they had the experience, that was going to work out for them. Okay. So this is event number one. How was the company when things were going okay? Event number two was they've hit a problem. Event number three is they meet a guide. How did they meet you, Marcus? Through my content marketing via LinkedIn. So I've been using LinkedIn probably for about nine years, telling stories on there. And Mm. a tactic that I use is a dialogue. So it's a dialogue between the vendor and the partner or the salesperson and the customer, manager and the salesperson, that kind of thing. And they picked up on one of my pieces and they contacted me on LinkedIn and we started a conversation that way. Brilliant. Okay, so that's step three. That's how they met you and that's interesting they met you that way. Step number four is they got a plan. Could you tell me about the plan that you put in place for them, Marcus? Yeah, sure. The plan started with working out how the type of business that they wanted to create. So working with the founder to develop his personal vision and then look at the values, the mission of the business, which we eventually worked out was that they wanted to be the de facto go-to vendor for companies within their particular niche. What they realized was they were trying to be everything to everybody. And so we had them niche down to a very particular segment of the market. And then we looked outside to their external environment, the competitive landscape, the marketplace. And we identified what their own internal strengths and weaknesses were, what the external opportunities and threats were. And then we revisited the organizational vision Because we realized what they were trying to grow fast, but they couldn't do that if they were going to do it all themselves. And that then made them realize that their key priority was to develop a channel. And they were going to go through third parties. But in order to do that, they had to be really clear about their expectations and identify what their key priorities were at every step. So we sat down and through weeks of beating our heads together, we built an action plan for the founder, his salespeople. We identified that one of them wasn't really a good fit in terms of developing a channel. The other one actually wasn't too bad because they had more capability at strategic planning. They were a good coach. They were a good communicator. And they were collaborative. So we ended up replacing one of those people. And we identified that they needed to actually spend some money on the channel. Because historically, the channel has never been a great area where people spend money. But Mm. they actually set aside budget for doing that. And they worked out how they were going to go to market to recruit their partners. And then what they did was they put in place a number of processes and milestones along the way to help them achieve that. And the next step was then determining the exact structure of how they were going to implement it and then to design the role functions of the business that they wanted to become. And in doing that, they were then able to create very clear job descriptions 
And when they went out to the market to recruit the next salesperson or the next channel manager, they knew what they were looking for. So when they saw it, they recognized it. Okay, Mark, just in the interest of time, I'm just going to, because this sounds very comprehensive, Marcus. So that's number four. You gave them a plan and you gave them a detailed plan, which looks like it took several months to kind of map out, right? We co-developed it. They did all the work. I simply guided them through it. You gave them the template and the guide of them. Okay. The fifth step, and this is really important when you're telling the story, and we'll tell it in a minute. We'll tell the story short. The fifth step is called avoids failure. Were there some times when that founder wasn't too sure or maybe didn't want to change? Absolutely. And how did you avoid avoid that going wrong? He was resistant to a large extent because of the workload, because like many founders, they're developers, they're techies, they don't really think of themselves as salespeople. And the underlying message was, wouldn't it be lovely if we could just forget about sales, finish the development of this product? and people will flock to our doors. So I gave him several examples of where that didn't happen. The key thing was to remind him of why he was doing it and who yeah. he was doing it for. So was the, the, the issue for the founder was the, the personal effort that this took, yeah? For, really, it was it took above, several over and weeks. above what he took. Yeah, yeah. It, it took several weeks of additional work, and initially he felt that it was taking him away from his real job. And the challenge there is that it is his real job. His job is to lead. He's got a bunch of developers. And what he was falling into the trap of being was a micromanager, a rescuer, and a bottleneck. And when we helped him define his role more effectively, and that was part of the process of defining the different roles within the business, then he realized that he had to let go of that stuff, even though he loved it. That's the fifth event. The final event is achieve success. Paint for me a little bit afterwards what success looked like for this company. They've gone from essentially growing at 3 5 10% and pretty much flatlining to growing into triple digits. They're now multinational and they have clients who buy multiple products from them. And they're able to create, or they've been able to create an ecosystem where their partners, for every pound that they spend on the vendor's product, they're making about five pounds in services. So working with the partners collaboratively to co-create, go-to-market plan, they were able to develop a shared sales methodology, and they were able to develop a go-to-market plan for very specific opportunities they were able to put money in the partner's back because partners are coin-operated. And if you're not putting money in the partner's back, then they're going to go dark on you. In a very short space of time, they've been able to grow to over 10 million. Okay. And what has that meant personally for the founder? Well, it's meant that his job has changed dramatically because now they have far more people. It's, you know, he doesn't know everyone by name anymore. And the partnerships are really critical to them. So he's having to deal peer-to-peer with chief executive to chief executive. He's become far more strategic. But actually, the job's evolved, and he's really interested in it. You know, he's fascinated by it. Yeah. And his baby has become an adolescent, and now they're looking for funding to fund the next stage of growth. And roughly what age is that founder? He's 47. 
So he's actually built an incredible asset that he could sell if he wanted to or do whatever yeah. he wanted. Yeah. And he was yeah. doing it for his family. He's yeah. got a relatively young family. He's got three kids. Age, I suppose they'd be, what, between 15 and 21 now. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to provide a safe and secure future for them. But yeah. he also wanted to create a great environment for his people so everyone feels taken care of because he's not, he's not a selfish man. He's quite introverted and he really cares about his people. So being able right. to create that environment allowed him to do all of that. And do you know roughly when his company was founded? I think it was 2011. All right, let's see if I can tell your success story. Please, uh, Marcus. We'll still coach it through, so I want to do it by the steps. So let's imagine now that you're going to meet someone a little bit like that founder, right? Maybe they're in a tech industry, doesn't have to be security, but they're in that situation where it's the founder and he's he's struggling, right? Yep. It reminds me, Marcus, I'll pretend you're the the client, of a client like you, that they're a security company founded back in 2011. And by about 2016, they'd grown quickly on the back of the founder's sales skills. But as they built a sales team and and try, you know, the founder tried to to get the organization to scale, they absolutely flatlined and it, it wasn't happening. And the founder couldn't really figure out what was going wrong. And it turns out uh, he read one of the blog posts that I put up on LinkedIn and contacted me. And I went in and what I found was that his business, they were trying to do too many things for too many people. They, hadn't, they didn't have a clear focus on what they were selling and how they were addressing their market. And what was really needed was a strategic review. And over a period of weeks, I was able to put in place a review and completely change how they thought about their market and which partners they needed to work, figured out a, tra- a channel strategy for them. And the founder initially thought that this was an awful lot of work because I obviously they needed to do a lot of that work. And I was a bit concerned at one stage. I thought he might not do that work, but eventually he did. He put the effort into really looking at his sales organization and how a channel strategy could work with a different mission and really understanding what their values were and what they brought to their market. And the end result has been a business that is far bigger than the founder had even dreamed to have. He's now triple-digit growth. He's now an international company, multi-product international company. He's managing a staff that he doesn't even know all the people that work for him anymore. But more importantly, he's a 47-year-old with a family that now has options. He's not stuck in his business. He could sell it if he wanted to. He could change his life because he's made his life and a business that really works for him. Just followed the six steps that you told me, Marcus, and I probably mucked up some things. But you see that by starting with the company, bringing in yourself as the guide, explaining the plan and how it could go wrong. And I just picked one of the things that could go wrong. But usually what we do with the avoid failure step is we throw in there all the objections and we answer them in the what could go wrong. They thought that they wouldn't need to spend so much time and or money, and then they realized that, no, this was really going to make a huge difference, and they decided to find the budget, and the CEO or the founder put the time in. You're just basically answering an objection in the story. You're bringing it up Excellent. and answering it in the story. So that's a success story. It has six parts. It's more complex than the other stories. 
but it has to be your buyer recognizing your successful company, your successful client in that story. They have to see themselves in that story, right? Love and then it. that's what they want. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the only thing I would have issue with there is that, that he didn't really think about going via the channel, but that's easy to uh, adapt. Okay, yeah, yeah. But, I, um, yeah, I but the, the sequence works really well. I can see how that would work. Tell me this. In terms of telling stories to manage conflict, have you got any examples of that? Often it happens in sales that we're in a difficult situation. People, particularly I would say in channel sales, you know, we've got people not behaving well. And there's, there's a story type, I call it a teaching story. I call it the sales manager's story, actually. It's the story about how you overcame some sort of conflict in the past. I'll give you a quick example. When I was with a big multinational German company that I might have already mentioned before, we were selling a really big content management system to a media company. And it it involved, it was a true revenue share. It involved a lot of our engineers and a lot of their people. And it was a multi-million dollar thing to even figure out if it was technically possible. And we'd worked with this client for a long time on the scoping and as I said, it was going to be a revenue share. And we got to the point where we had to sign a contract and we got called into the headquarters. And then this new person appeared who was the chief negotiator of the client. And this person had obviously been to negotiation school and aced it. And it was the most unpleasant, <laughs> demanding, odious character you've ever met in your life. And he took the contract that had been prepared by his technical people and a very complicated system and how it was going to work and just demanded 99.9% reliability wasn't good enough. It had to be 99.999. The price was too high. He just, he just shredded it, right? And I remember coming out of this first meeting thinking, well, we're never going to close this deal. It's impossible. And I, I went back to our office and, and one of the more senior guys, sales guys, looked at me and obviously saw that from my face that something was wrong and asked me about it and I told him. And he said, Mike, why don't you just go around and see him and have a chat? And I hadn't even thought of the possibility. But I did. I called him up and said, look, you know, that was a pretty rough meeting. Could we have a chat? And and I went around and I realized after about five minutes that he had no clue what he was negotiating. He'd been brought in. He didn't understand it. We talked for two hours. I taught him how the whole thing fitted together, what was negotiable and what was not negotiable. And we went back into the next meeting and he didn't change personality or character one bit. For his own team, he was exactly the same person, but he skirted around all of the non-negotiable issues. And two or three meetings later, we got a deal done. Fantastic. And that's the teaching story. I'm, I use that story to teach other salespeople how to get around a difficult problem, right? So if you've been around in sales, you collect these stories and you use them to influence. Quite often, like in that kind of deal, I might need to tell that sort of story to my sponsor in the client organization because they've got the problem in their decision meeting and you're not even there. You're not invited, right, as the salesperson. So this is a kind of story that can do work for you and you're not there. Very useful, particularly in enterprise sales like the one you were describing. Yeah, yeah. But look, channel sales has its conflicts, you know, and I can remember some very some very unpleasant situations. So building up that little chest of war stories of how problem how these things were solved 
can really open people's minds to a different way of thinking. Fantastic. Mike, this has been really insightful. Really appreciate it. I have one more question for you, which is this. If you were to advise your 25-year-old self how to prevent acts of idiocy and self-sabotage, what would you tell him? (laughs) My 25-year-old self was not possible to advise. (laughs) That guy knew everything there was was to know. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like my teenage daughters. (laughs) Oscar Wilde, I think I'm, I'm probably misquoting him, but he said, I couldn't believe how ignorant my father was when I was 14. And I couldn't believe how much he'd learned by the time I was 21. Someone told me, when your kid turns 11, you become stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I think it might be the same thing. Yeah. Excellent. But look, Mike. Maybe, maybe a more serious answer to that, you know, if I was to advise my younger self on my career, I would say to be a little bit more patient mm-hmm. in some of the organizational situations I was in and last them out and try to solve some problems that I think as a technical, because I'm an engineer, I'm a technical person, that I stewed about and didn't raise, you know, didn't open up to them. And, you know, I think that's just a maturing kind of thing that's probably pretty common. There's a fabulous book by a guy called Mark Goulston, who's a mentor of mine. And uh, he taught me this one phrase, which is just pure gold, which is let go or be dragged. (laughs) so on that note mike adams thank you so much for being my guest today really enjoyed the conversation and for those of you who are listening mike how can people get hold of you they go to their google search bar or their favorite search engine and type mike adams storytelling and they will see 15 or 20 pages of how to get my book and uh videos and YouTube channels and everything. (laughs) Excellent. And Seven Stories is available on paperback, Kindle, and Audible. The audio version is very accessible, and I have the Kindle version for a quick reference. So highly recommended. Mike, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. Wonderful to chat. Thanks a lot.